picture may paint a thousand words, but a prototype can save you a thousand dollars. Prototypes can help entrepreneurs understand the strengths and weaknesses of their innovation and allow them to test functionality before they go to market. Not to mention, it's much easier to approach investors with a working model of your product rather than just paperwork and talk. If you're ready to start prototyping but aren't sure where to start, stay tuned. In this episode of Biz 503, we'll cover the benefits of prototyping and how and where to get started. I'm Mike Rogaway, business writer at The Oregonian, co-hosting with Linda Weston, previously of The Oregon Entrepreneurs Network, now a principal at Reporto. Thanks, Mike. I'm happy to be here, and I know you are too. Indeed. Joining us now in the studio as we dig into the importance of the prototyping step, we have Carson Cook, recent U of O graduate with a master's in sports product management and intern at Studio 317. Carson, can you tell us a little bit about 317? Sure. Hi, excited to be here. The studio is uh, the president and founder is Elizabeth LeMay. So I'll tell you a quick little bit about her. She has over 25 years in the industry, um, up and down the entire apparel supply chain. But her last 17 years in the industry was spent corporately at Nike. She retired from her role as senior apparel innovation director in February of 2014. And then six months later, she started Studio 317. Basically, it's an advanced apparel innovation and prototype space. It's located in Southeast Portland on 815 Southeast Grant. And really, the studio provides local designers and entrepreneurs the opportunity to be hands-on during all stages of that prototyping process, from that initial idea to that production-ready design. So the studio works with clients, big and small, and they've actually had some recent new developments. Uh, November of last year, Elizabeth and the studio partnered with RSI, uh, stands for Reliable Source Industrial. It's a global active wear and apparel manufacturing services company. And it's out of Taipei. And so large operation factories in five different countries, and they produce about 25 million units each year. But Elizabeth and RSI here in Portland, um, what's exciting is they're trying to bring a small batch manufacturing opportunity to the Portland area in the near future. Okay. Thanks, Carson. We also have Chris Lau, General Manager at ADX Portland. Chris, for those who don't know, can you tell us a little bit about ADX? Yeah. ADX is a little bit of sort of a three-headed sort of deal. First and foremost, we're a makerspace. So functions a lot like a gym where you pay a monthly membership and then you can come in and use the tools and machines in the space that we have. We also teach classes, which is sort of the second arm of it. But as it pertains to sort of prototyping, we're a custom fabrication shop as well. So that's sort of what we do to make money. Chris, maybe you could explain to us a little bit about basically what prototyping is and give us an example of a product where it it makes a particular amount of sense. Yeah. My rule of thumb is that if you're going to make more than five of something, you should probably make a prototype. So it's basically just testing every step of the process up to sort of the final design to make sure that everything's in place for a successful production run. What stage should an entrepreneur be at with their idea or their product when they first consider prototyping? I think you need to have a pretty good idea of where you're trying to go. You've already sort of gone through the, this is a great idea. You've done your market research, everything else. Um, You feel like you're ready to go to market. And then that's sort of where you want to step in and say, okay, now it's time to test the product itself. Carson, how much would you say somebody should expect to spend on prototyping a product? Well, it's kind of a tough question because it can be really costly currently. Uh, A lot of brands, the process as it is now is they have to send their concept to maybe Southeast Asia factory, get it back. Hopefully it's interpreted correctly and returned promptly. And that can take 
for some of these big brands in town anywhere from four weeks to three months. So what Elizabeth and Studio 317 is trying to provide is a more hands-on, cost-effective, close here in Portland. So that process isn't that back and forth costly engine. So it's hard to put a number on that. Is it do it yourself or is 317 doing it for you? How's that work? Good question. Basically, local designers, depending on how involved they want to be in the process, can sit right there with the pattern maker, the seamstress, and be hands-on during that entire process. And I think that's really what makes the studio unique. You're doing apparel products often, so it's something that you can say, hey, this is what I want it to look like. Here's the schematic. Get the sewing machine out. Totally. Anytime where you can take that vision and take it from 2D to 3D, I mean, especially in apparel, prototypes are crucial. You can't not build a garment without prototypes. What sort of company is doing this? What sort of small company uh, needs these services? Well, I'd say big and small companies alone. I mean, I can't really talk to specifically the companies that are coming through the door at the studio, but I can tell you that there are large brands in town as well as entrepreneurs that are trying to start up. Oh, that's interesting that you even have larger organizations needing this service. Well, the new conversation kind of in the market is how to respond quickly and be nimble. Those 18-month timeframes where products being created, you can't really react to market trends as quickly. So being nimble and having an aspect for rapid prototyping is becoming you know, an increasing trend. Chris, could you talk a little bit about the different kinds of prototyping you do at ADX and what the challenges might be within some of those different sectors? Because you do a bunch of different things at at ADX. (laughs) Um, There are sort of two different kinds of clients when it comes to prototyping that come in. Um, There are people that are looking for a production run of something. So for instance, we do a lot of tap handles. We work a lot with craft brewing, distilling industry people. So that type of customer is going to come in and say, I want a thousand tap handles. They don't really care about a prototype. We're going to make them one anyway. So, uh, so in essence, in that case, you're you're a small manufacturing firm uh, as well as a prototype yeah, facility. Yes, yeah, very small run. Okay. <laughs> For us, in order to be successful in creating a run of a thousand of the same thing, you need to start by making one because you learn about the process that way. And also you can then send that to the client and say, are you sure this is what you want? Hold it, look at it, you know? And then they can check off on it and then you make the thousand. Uh, And that way everything's above board. The second type of person that comes in is someone who has the next big idea. They want to make 10,000 units overseas, but they need a prototype now. They need to go after investment, things like that. So they come in, usually this is the type of person that'll come in with more of like a hand sketch or something. uh, And they'll say, I want to do this thing. I want it to look like this. I want it to have all these functions. And so that's a little bit more of a design and working with the clients. Instead of building something that they've already fully envisioned, you're sort of working with them to help them envision not only what is the final product going to do, how is it going to work, what's it going to look like, but also how is it going to be built. So you're prototyping not only, again, the product, but the process that it's more or less going to be used in manufacturing. When you finish with that and you have your prototype, what does it teach you when you look at it? How can you tell if the prototype suggests you have a good design or a bad design? Yeah. So for for the end user, uh, again, it's does it serve its intended function? Is it attractive? All of those considerations for us as the production shop or for whoever's going to be producing it, you learn, are there any sort of glaring issues with the way it's going to be produced? Is there any sort of joints that are impossible or have to be made by hand or can everything be made in batches? It can inform what you need to tweak from a production standpoint. And a lot of the time you can change those things without having any effect on the end product. 
Um, but it's important in prototyping, even though you're only making one, to treat it as if you're making a thousand. So it's teaching you something about how you're going to convert it to a manufactured product as yeah. well. So I'm, I'm curious about intellectual property protection. I talk to a lot of entrepreneurs for whom that's a big concern. I'd like to hear from each of you at what point during the process should the entrepreneur be worried about that protection? Yeah, I think for our sort of products, mostly a lot of people really aren't interested in IP. It's a lot of times branding stuff that's already sort of taken care of. Sometimes there are people that will want us to sign a non-disclosure. is the next big thing type of clients. And I would say that it's later in the process than, than you would think. Um, I'm kind of a believer in people and that they're not going to steal your great idea and that you should see it at least to the end of prototyping uh, before you, unless it's a home run. I don't think you want to spend a lot of time and money and effort on doing all the legal stuff before you even know if you have a viable idea. Sure. I mean, in the apparel world, a lot of these design patents, I know the conversation's been around that U.S. patent office to kind of shorten its time frame for reviewing patents. So a lot of times you could be designing something and then by the time the patent gets filed, the fashion has changed and passed the product's life cycle. So now I know that that reviewal process is down under a year, more like eight to 10 months. But within the space and the studio, we're always signing NDAs and a lot of that process is, you know, with some of the companies that are tech companies doing wearable tech, that's more of a conversation. But for those brands that are doing sportswear, which is what Elizabeth specializes in, it's that whole, you define that initial consumer problem, you plan, you build. And then a lot of times after that testing period, you're replanning, redefining, rebuilding. So by the time you actually have something that you think's patentable, um, a lot of times it's usually just a design patent or it's the conversations off the table. When you have your prototype, who else do you show it to? Do you show it to investors? Do you show it to potential customers? Who can give you good feedback on what you've got? I feel like the best person is that intended consumer, that muse. If they can, for an apparel garment, if they can get it on, test it, wear it, they're going to be the one that says, oh, hey, this seam line, as specific as that, is positioned wrong and it's itching me. Or after a certain amount of washes, it actually didn't hold up. Or... It's supposed to be water resistant, but I wore it outside and I got wet. So that intended consumer without you, you know, prying for what you want out of it is perfect. And then you can get great advice from people that aren't the end consumer. Does that mean that you need more than one of the prototypes? Yeah, you definitely need a lot of prototypes. I mean, even like a big companies in town, they're, you know, getting on the athlete early on that really specific proto. But then even down the line, having people fit test it along the way. Thanks, Carson. And, and moving from idea to production next, stay tuned. We'll be covering the essentials of getting started with prototyping after this short break. You're listening to Biz 503, the podcast for small businesses, startups, and anyone who wants to turn their idea into income. Biz 503 on PRP. Welcome back to Biz 503 on PRP. I'm Linda Weston, Principal at Reporto, co-hosting with Mike Ruggaway of The Oregonian. Thanks, Linda. Today on Biz 503, we're tracking the how-tos of prototyping from design to product. In this segment, we'll cover the first steps of turning an idea into a text product and how best to prepare. With us now, Carson Cook, Studio 317, and Ben Storm, Director of Mobile Strategy at Knuckleheads. Ben, can you tell us a little bit about Knuckleheads and what happens there? Yeah, hey guys. 
Uh, we are a mobile technology shop. Uh, we've been here in Portland for about a decade, and we work with startups all the way to Fortune 500 companies. And the prototyping process is huge for both groups uh, to help get products to market faster. Tell us a little bit about mistakes people make in the prototyping process. What goes wrong? I don't know if it's necessarily things go wrong. I think the biggest thing up front is the homework, because when we're in the mobile space specifically, there's iOS and there's Android. And a lot of times there's very different user groups, market groups, demographics. And a lot of times when we're focused on a prototype, we're also focused on the MVP, which we call a minimum viable product. So a lot of what our job is, is not only educating the client about the mobile space, but then also helping them figure out a feature set that impacts the market, but also meets their kind of desired budget and timeline needs. Can you talk a little bit about what is the best way for entrepreneurs to get feedback on the prototype and at what point do they do that? Yeah. So I think as other people were saying, it really depends on who it's intended for. So a lot of times with our startups, the prototype is going to an investor, an advertiser or a user. Now, all three of those groups may be the same person or they may not. And so I think as we're putting the prototype together, we've also most times done a lot of technical documentation as well as design. We'll allow our clients to bring in those key stakeholders in the meetings so that we're able to get that in more of a collaborative process rather than just dropping it on them. If it's a bigger group and we're kind of working with an innovation arm of a bigger company, a lot of times that group's end user may be the category or their boss or the board of directors a lot of times those initial discussions that I have with people, we identify who that's going to be. And then as we're putting those documents together, we're tailoring it to the end user. So is it best to start with a simple prototype first and then move to a more complex one or just to start with the more complex one? I think from the prototype standpoint, less is more because part of how our process works is we'll do a lot or we like to do a lot of upfront work. So we may already have outlined exactly what the system looks like in whatever device or devices the system has. But then the prototype is one piece of that system. The thing we've found and, and the major value of the prototype is it's the thing that creates the interest. And then really the number one question that comes from that is, well, how fast can I have it? So the way that we work is idea to deployment. Our shop's kind of unique because we do it all in-house. We really educate the client on how to have a to-market timeline because especially for our space and technology, first to market has a lot of value to it. And we actually have Chris Lau back with us in this segment. And I wanted to ask you something. Had either of you followed the company, the Silicon Valley startup Juicero and their prototyping experience? Had you followed what Bloomberg wrote about that? So what, what happened there is they created a prototype and sold it to their investors and they raised a lot of money, but then the investors discovered once the finished product was out, it was a, an automatic juicing machine. Uh, it was about $1,300. If I recall, people discovered that you didn't actually need the machine, that the key step in the process could be performed by hand just by squeezing the bag that the raw materials were in. Whoops. Yeah. It, it was a little bit of a disaster. The investors weren't happy and, and Juicero came in for a good deal of ridicule. I'm curious, in the, the prototyping process, what do you do to sort of a gut check to say, okay, you know, this is something that's 
practical and useful. And it's not just an idea that looks good. Yeah. I mean, I think getting it into the hands of the end user is really big. Again, we don't deal with a whole lot of brand new $1,300 juicers, <laughs> right. but you know, we've had instances where we'll go on the marketing department of a brewery says, okay, this tap handle looks great. So we make 500 of them. This actually happened. They end up being too heavy. And when the bartenders try uh-huh. to use them, they just fall open and then the taps pour beer everywhere. As soon as you put them on. <laughs> so had we given them to the people at the tap room, they would have been like, this is a really heavy tap handle. You're going to have issues. And they would have known that right off the bat. So just getting the people that are going to use it to troubleshoot it is important. So following on to that, once you've given it to the end user and they've played around with it a little bit, how do they actually know when they're done and you can start production? That's to both of you, I think. Well, I think from our standpoint, we have a fairly set feature set. So once it's there, and and I think how our process works is very iterative so that we're meeting with the client as often as there's feedback to give. And I think back to the juicing idea, that's an area we live in a lot. And I think a lot of this now goes back to the original entrepreneur or even innovation group to do their homework before they reach out to vendors to say, we want to be the Uber of, it's probably, it may already be a very dense forest to play in we can try and build as compelling of a tool as we can. But I think the client also has to be realistic about what they're coming into because in acquisitions and groups like Facebook that are buying faster than we can keep track of, that's a big group to contend with. Now we'll do it because we have confidence in in our skills and abilities. But I think uh, a lot of times, and this is what I deal with a lot as kind of the front end of the idea flow is we're a lot of times further down the path than they are. And they may need to talk to an attorney first because everybody thinks they've got the most unique thing. And then you do a few hours of research and say, well, these guys maybe aren't exactly the same, but it's pretty close. So part of the prototyping in our blueprint and design phase can help create those competitive advantages or differences, but the client needs to spend some time up front to make sure they, they've understood the market they're ready to get into because for us, these mobile businesses are the business. So it's not just a product to go with a juicer or a speaker system, although it can. A lot of these are, um, you know, mobile first businesses. Do you find clients are open to the notion that the dream they came up with doesn't quite translate into the real world? It's not really fun being the bearer of bad news, but I'd rather be honest with them and try and give them as much advice as I can. I'm the only one that's not billable time. So I feel like it's kind of my duty to have every call and every meeting and every coffee that I can, because even in some conversations, you can help kind of re-guide that and then get them in touch with local groups like Technology Association of Oregon or Oregon Entrepreneurs Network. And they've got a lot in their network as well that can help, especially startups Chris, you were shaking your head when I asked that question. Have, have you had clients who sort of balked at the idea that their dream maybe there, doesn't pencil out physically? There, there have been a couple, but for the most part, people are really open to hearing constructive criticism about whatever their product or idea is. Um, and I think 95% of the time, at least, there's a kernel of genius in everybody's product idea. And 100% of the time, their original product idea is not what's going to go to market. So I think there's sort of a meeting halfway point of like, I know how to make it. You have a a great idea somewhere in there. 
so part of my job is to help you dig it out. And for the most part, people are open to that. When they're not is sort of when it gets difficult to create a viable product. When it's done well, it's a collaborative process. Yeah. And when it's done badly, probably the product's not going anywhere. Yeah. Well, and if they don't want the criticism, it may not be a good project or partner to have. Because I think similar, you know, the thing I'll say 100% of the time, the project's 100% different from when they we started to talk about it to when it goes to prototype or development. Is there an average length of time from the time the entrepreneur first comes in and talks to you to you end up with that finished prototype? For us, a lot of times it depends on their availability, which is important, but then it's also platforms and features. Where my job really is, is taking all of that and then reviewing it with the team and coming back with a plan of attack and then seeing if that fits with what they want to do. But I think from our, and obviously it really depends on how deep they want to go to, because our goal after we get through the prototype is we already have the technical documentation and design work in place too. So the second that they go, yeah, we're ready to go, this thing goes into production, not back to, okay, well now let's figure out how all these systems fit together. So we can do rapid prototyping, absolutely, but more often what makes the most sense for clients is get this thing to market. So our process is very regimented. And generally, a single platform will take three to four months to get through that whole piece. But if they need something much faster, we can certainly do that too. It just may not be the most efficient way from a process standpoint to get the piece to market. Chris, what about you at ADX? What happens? How does that process work? Um, yeah, again, it depends mostly on the client. We we do so many different things that it could be anywhere from three weeks to a year to go from start to finish. So we've had clients come in with, and again, it's usually these two different types of clients. So it's corporate client that has a product that they want made. They already have it ready to go. All we have to do is build their design, send it to them and say, is this okay? So that's like a three-week job. And then you have the person that comes in with a napkin sketch, says, I want to make this revolutionary lawn care device and I have no idea how it works or what it's going to do, but like, I know what it's called. That's going to take a year. I mean, because we're going to have to have four meetings, several phases of just design and functionality talks. And then before we actually get around to building the product, it's, I mean, we have to figure out what it is first and that takes a long time. Chris, in an ideal situation, then what does somebody bring with them when they're coming in? I mean, what do you, what would you like to have to get started? The important things for a shop like us is, I call it the triangle, is your budget, your timeline, and to what level of completeness you're looking for. So if someone says, I have a million dollars and I need this thing tomorrow and it needs to be perfect, cool, we'll do that. <laughs> if someone says, I have 10 bucks and I need it tomorrow, I'm going to say, good luck. But So that's the big thing for us. And then after that, it's sort of like a well-formed idea. That's one of those things that can drive the points of the triangle inward. So if you have good design files, sort of if you already have an idea of kind of how the production process is going to go, uh, that helps a little bit too. But too tight of a plan is not a great thing either. That's interesting. And, and so people are bringing in all varying levels of a completed idea or schematic or something like that. Sometimes you're helping them out with that. Sometimes there's farther along. Mm -hmm. So you actually every now and then see the sketch on the piece of paper or the proverbial <laughs> all, cocktail napkin? All the time. I'll get that too. Really? Yeah. I, I have to say I'm a little surprised that people aren't a bit farther along by that when they come to you and ask for help with a prototype. 
I think at least from our side, a lot of times the amount of time and effort they've put in isn't really helpful outside of understanding more of what their vision is. Because I think most people that are coming to us sense a need in their industry or some industry they're interested in. So it's more about solving a problem than developing an elegant or a sophisticated system or tool to solve that. So similarly, I'll get bullet points or a handful of sentences or even a napkin sketch that says, here's what we're trying to do. And that's really where our magic happens is to say, okay, that's enough for us to then do our process. And at the end of this, you'll have the answer to what this problem was trying to solve. That really is magic. Yeah, it's fascinating. You're doing a lot more on your end than I'd envisioned. I pictured somebody with the cocktail napkin getting turned away at the door. But no, that's something you're all for. As long as they're realistic. I think that's the other hard part with especially native applications is it's a custom piece of software. And so I think when people look at Uber, they'll say, oh, it's so easy. Well, that took someone a ton of time to make it easy and have a great user experience and all these kinds of things. And so a lot of what I'm doing up front is setting the expectations, but then through our portfolio and capabilities and process and all these kinds of things, you can quickly show how we take these bullet points and and give them something that they can take and, and hopefully build a business around. If you had a piece of advice then for somebody who's thinking about getting started with this and and one thing they should know before they speak to you, what would you say? That's a pretty broad question. Yeah. Um, Be prepared for sticker shock. I think also just be prepared for the level of commitment they're going to need to give outside of just resources. Because to have a true kind of collaborative workshop session is going to take some time. And so how serious are you about this? Was this something you and a buddy decided on over happy hour? Or is this, you know, something that you see as a, a true need in a marketer area you're interested in? With the sticker shot question, I'm, I'm curious, you know, the relationship between the cost of the prototype to the cost of making a, a batch of a thousand or something like that. What should you expect? So for small batch manufacturing, it's obviously cheaper to make one than it is to make a thousand, but the per unit cost is typically going to be four to five times what it's going to be sort of at that scale. So say for instance, a tap handle production of a thousand, they cost 50 bucks a piece. Uh, your prototype's probably going to be maybe $300 mm-hmm. uh, depending on the complexity. Yeah. You talk about sticker shock there, Ben. I, I guess the more sophisticated product is, the harder it's going to get me to get started. I mean, that's kind of the reason we've created the process the way that we have is to be very startup friendly. Because even when we start talking about the idea up front, we also try and give development ballpark costs. So at least the client or company or group knows what we think the overall budget could be. But then focusing on just getting something in their hands is a fraction of that overall budget. So it's kind of the good news, bad news. But I think that's what I always try and give someone as quickly as I can, because that's going to be kind of the go, no go of if they're really serious about moving this forward. So part of that conversation would also be working with a realistic timeline and helping the client to understand, you know, you might think this is only going to take a week, but what it's really going to take is six months. I would think that's true for both of you and both of the groups of entrepreneurs that you work with. How often do they go into shock when they hear that timeline? I don't think for us it's a huge shock unless they've created a reason to be. Have they made an investor meeting a week before talking to us? That's probably not a good idea. 
I think from our standpoint, the number one thing we talk about when we kick off a project is schedule, because the other thing we want to try and put in there are major events, whether it be investor meetings or trade show conferences for the industry that this tool could affect. These become great opportunities for awareness. And so if we can put those in the schedule, we can work back, get them as much materials as we can so that their meetings, pitches, presentations are as successful as possible. Do you ever go to the investor presentations with them? I have. Yeah. And our group will actually, for certain startups, actually act as their chief technology officer. So that company can essentially act as the CEO and then they'll have a full all here in Portland CTO from design through development and support. What sort of questions do investors have for you? How's this going to make money? And so, yeah, monetization is another huge thing we talk about all the time. Mm -hmm. Uh, Localization support so that we can get this to the largest amount of people as fast as possible. Well, that really is a a tight partnership then you have if you're answering that question. Chris, what about you? Do you ever go to investor meetings with your clients? Typically, no. I mean, our our clientele usually is self-funded. We're not talking huge amounts of money. Like, I think we're on a totally different price range than Two different kinds you know, of app development and things like that. So, no, uh, mostly just dealing with marketing departments and things like that. Uh, so. All right. Thanks. So we're getting down to the nuts and bolts here. Stay tuned. We'll cover some hands-on process of prototyping and what to do when we come back. Are you ready to turn your idea into cash? Or are you already launched and hitting roadblocks? Join PRP each Friday at 1 p.m. for Biz 503, the talk show for startups and small businesses. Welcome back. I'm Mike Rogaway, co-hosting with Linda Weston on Biz 503. So we've covered the why of prototyping and how to make some of those first steps. Now we're going to talk more about what the process looks like and how to adapt as the process moves along and sometimes things don't work out. All right, back with us in the studio, we have Ben Storm from Knuckleheads and Carson Cook from Studio 317. Welcome back. So one question we have as you're going through this process and flow is what sort of resources you can draw from the community? Uh, Where else can you go for ideas and assistance? Well, I think to tout the studio a little is that was kind of the, the hope when Elizabeth started Studio 317 is to have not only a consulting service and a design space where you can build and do this, but also have access to her resources for manufacturing, to have materials and trims library, to have those specialized machines that you wouldn't be able to have somewhere else, like a bonding machine or a laser cutter. And then there's also other, I know other places in town around Portland, considering there's such an array of apparel companies from Maker's Row about sourcing and other resources there to even Portland Garment Factory. And I got to hear uh, Britt Howard just talk at the Structure event here in Portland. So there's a few other resources besides Studio 317 that can provide for apparel makers specifically. So what advice um, would you give to entrepreneurs who really don't know where to start? Uh, Hopefully they'll hear you guys um, on this broadcast and seek you out. But if people really don't know where to start or they're trying to get a prototype for a kind of product we haven't talked about today, what are the resources they could use or, or go 
to? I'd like to just probe a little bit on, on that one. Yeah, I think even going back to the last question, at least from the technology standpoint, there's all kinds of resources, uh, whether it be TAO, which I mentioned, or OEN, StarveUps. There's so many different groups that are all about trying to help nurture and get ideas and young companies successful and off the ground. Like I said before, I'm always happy to talk to anybody. And, and whether we're a good fit or not, there's going to be other groups and resources around town that I'm happy to send them to so that they can have multiple conversations so that they can make the best decision for their idea, product, company, whatever. So getting out there and networking a little bit, meeting other entrepreneurs and talking with them about what they've done and where they've gone and the resources they've used is going to be really helpful. Yeah, I think everybody wants to help. And I think that's the thing that's been really cool from our standpoint doing this for almost a decade is you still run in a lot of the same circles or new people come into those circles, especially in a, in a kind of small community like Portland, you want to see everyone succeed. And so there's a lot of resources. I think the Portland entrepreneurial community really is collaborative. We're very, very lucky in that regard. It's not that way everywhere else. So I would encourage folks to get out there. There's a meetup every night of the week that you could go to and get feedback no matter what sector you're in. I'm curious about the process of moving from a prototype to manufacturing and what you learn in the pitfalls. Are, are you guys familiar with Coolest Cooler? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So for listeners who are not, it's a, a Kickstarter project that raised a great deal of money in orders for a, a tricked out cooler. They came up with, they did a handful of prototypes. And then when it went to manufacture in Asia, it ended up costing a lot more to make than they'd anticipated and be a lot more complex. I think it's been two and a half years now, and they're still trying to fill their original orders. What advice would you give as people are going through the prototyping process to pay attention to it and and draw out of that for making sure you don't run into manufacturing pitfalls? Yeah, I'll jump in. I mean, especially with apparel, I mean, that process, it's pretty specific to creating a proto and then getting it fit approved and having something that's manufacturing ready, a so-by sample or whatever, pre-production lots of terms for it coming with a tech pack ready for manufacturing. But something a lot of people don't realize is, you know, you can make one or two prototypes really great. You can have all these ideas and build into it, but you need to always have that aspect and mindset of scale at a manufacturing level. So a lot of times stripping it down, making it simpler, going back to what problem are you solving and can this be scaled at a factory setting really becomes crucial for people starting. How often does that run into a roadblock that you say, this is a good product, but scaling it up is going to be a trick? You know, it actually happens more than you think. I mean, that's kind of that constant conversation with design development and product management, that little triad that you'll find within these big companies is design will push an avenue and then product management and that costing team will come back and say, what's realistic at scale and what are consumers price willingness? And as you know, challenges as we see in the political environment, what can be made overseas and that cost of entry and that, you know, keeping that FOB cost low so that the cost doesn't be transferred onto the consumer is an ongoing conversation. Carson, do you ever have people breach in the apparel market, for example, do they ever say, oh, this is going to, we're going to be selling thousands of these and say, actually, it'll cost a lot. So, okay, maybe we'll make a hundred and we'll just charge a lot. Seriously. No, uh, That idea of making small runs and keeping it specific and that level of exclusivity is actually something that's becoming a trend as well. So is that right? Yeah. So what are some of the most common mistakes that you see entrepreneurs make as they get into the prototype process? I think I've already kind of covered our side on the technology piece, which is the homework. 
on the startup side, but I think, you know, kind of piggybacking that last comment, when we're working with much bigger companies with lots of teams and categories involved, understanding who's owning it is really important because it could be a sales enablement tool. Then HR wants to get involved on the training side. Then product wants to get involved with marketing that gets into social communication. So I think really quickly you can have too many cooks in the kitchen and all of a sudden this you know, this fairly simple feature set on a tablet's now exploded and we've got potentially three or four different applications there. From that standpoint, it's all about just setting the expectation and making sure that those teams know exactly what kind of implications they're making with the decisions. And if they want to increase the budget and timeline, great. If they don't, then we trim it back down and start to create a roadmap so that 6, 12, 18, 24 months after this thing gets out of prototype, goes into development, it's live, whatever. Everybody knows kind of the plan of attack. And again, we're on their side to keep improving it. Carson, what about you? Well, I feel like as you're building product, you always think it can be better. Brands are always working though on a budgeted amount of time and resources. So it's important to have gates and checkpoints. I know the constant conversation right now is shrinking the supply chain process. And if creating a product takes 18 months, but a consumer wants it in season and quicker, you have a new set of you know, inter, uh, interpersonal communication now has to be heightened. And so there has to be that idea of, you know, constantly checking in and having some sort of, you know, reason for this checkpoint. And then back to just another point is as you're prototyping, you got to be willing to fail and kind of that idea of if you're not failing, you're not trying. So just realize that prototyping process is that creative experiment where, especially in prototyping with apparel, you could be testing with a woven, have your heart set on it. But during the prototyping process, you realize a knit is way better and more specific and cost-friendly for the type of end user. So, I mean, just being open to that process. How often do you see a prototype fail? I'd say probably just as much as they succeed. Um, And I think that's a really iterative and important process of seeing something fail and then knowing exactly how to change it. A lot of times you'll have this fit sample and you're trying to base it on someone's measurements and you have to go through different fit approvals. And a lot of times if you're not willing to, you know, reach for something and fail, then you're not actually creating something new and exciting. So I think you have to almost want to fail or be willing to fail in order for something good to really come out of that. Are there times that failure means walking away? Yeah. And I think that's hard for a lot of brands to admit. And there's been a lot of successes and failures, especially within small batch and creating things. And luckily at that scale, you're fine for some of these big companies, you know, then you have this, all this inventory and it's a scary situation when you fail in on an idea or you don't hit a consumer trend. Right. So, yeah. See, and I think ours is really the only major fail point is it doesn't get invested to the level of being able to build it. I think the big benefit that we have is we can make changes as quickly as the client needs it. So a lot of times what we use the prototype as is the, we, we always call it a proof of concept. Are people validating the concept? And if, if they're not, what are the things that it's missing? And then that either reshapes the structure or the features or the layout animations, whatever it is. And we can make those changes in the same day. So from our perspective, we're always making changes now from a failure standpoint, it's only if it doesn't go to fruition. You've sort of described an iterative process here. When do you know you've done the last iteration? When do you know you've got it right? I don't think you're ever done. 
And I think that's part of what we're actually pitching companies is you're always updating it, whether it be for operating systems, whether it be for wearables, touchscreens, all these new things coming into play. And so from our clients, hopefully this thing's never done. And that's one of the values we try and have as opposed to having them do it all in-house because a lot of times then it can fall off. We're welcoming back now Chris Lau from ADX. Chris, I'm going to ask you, uh, when you're putting together an iterative process with a client, when do you know it's done? Your product is finished. It's going to be on a beer tap or something at some point. How do you know that you've got it far enough along? On one hand, it it is done. It will go to production. Um, But I would agree that it's really never done. Most of the time, if you're doing a production run of any product, you're going to do it again, or the company is going to do something based on that again, unless it's a total failure, in which case it's a total failure. But the prototype is, you know, it gets passed around until usually until we say it's going to take us three months to do the production run, probably three months before they need it is when where whatever state it's at, they're just like, all right, go for it. <laughs> so it's the um, timeline. You could get, you could work on it, noodle with it forever, but at some point. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's one of those things where it's never going to be perfect to someone's vision. So we'll do, we'll go ahead and do the run and then they'll come back in a year and say, we need more, but we want to make these changes. And so we have a lot of companies that we've worked with that we've done four or five runs of tap handles for them. And every time they come back and they have little tweaks, either design tweaks or functionality tweaks, sometimes they're big tweaks, like this can't open the beer tab by itself. But most of the time it's, you know, like, oh, you know, could we tweak this color here or could we use a slightly different material here? Sometimes there are internal tweaks to our process where we don't realize that when we scale it up, things are going to become an issue, like parts are going to move around a little bit or things like that. So we need to come up with sort of new production ideas to sort of make the process flow smoother on our end. So we were talking uh, before you rejoined us a little bit about common mistakes that people make in the prototyping process. What's the most common thing you see at ADX? Um, I think the most common mistake is thinking that you've already thought about everything. (laughs) People come in with just amazingly well thought out plans and kudos to them. It's impressive, but it's never going to work that way. And I think the biggest mistake is thinking that I've already thought this all the way through to like being a multinational corporation let's do it. (laughs) It's like, sorry, you're going to have to work with us a little bit on this one because we're going to start making it. And within the first hour, I'm sure something's going to change. So the the big surprise I've had listening to all three of you talk is that you don't necessarily want clients to come in with all the I's dotted and T's crossed, that you want, you know, something a little more conceptual than that, and then be a partner with them in figuring out how to make something that achieves what they wanted to do in a specific way. Well, and I think that's part of being hopefully an expert in the space is they're coming to you to bring a product to life that they couldn't do themselves. And so I think I always look at it as don't spend your time doing that. Spend your time getting people excited, markets identified, partnerships identified, investors identified, and then we'll help give you this beautiful thing that you can now proudly display. And so I always say, work on the story, you know, we'll work on the the visual piece. I agree with Mike. I'm very surprised at what I've learned here today that you don't need all the I's dotted and the T's crossed, that you're okay with that proverbial sketch on the napkin or the piece of paper. Um, that's, that's a little astonishing to me. And 
it makes me grateful that there are folks like you in the community that can take that information from an entrepreneur and then help them see it to fruition. I wonder if each of you might give us a concrete example of of some insight that came as a big surprise when you put this together, both to you and the client, maybe, that as you were putting something together, you thought, okay, this part of it is going to be pretty straightforward. And then you come through and say, oh, that's a a big leap. (laughs) Sure. So a lot of times people will come into the studio and they'll be pretty far along. Let's say it's a, a brand and it's a design and they have you know, something that's ref- they're refreshing, like a new update to something they've already had. And for them, they've got a pretty good block. You know, they know it fits their consumer. They just want something brand new and fresh. And a lot of times that timeline is like I mentioned before, it might be three weeks to four months for some of these brands, but the studio can go start to finish in 10 days, um, 10 working days. And so a lot of times what that looks like is here's the material I chose. And once by the time you sew it and you're trying something new, it just doesn't drape the same. It doesn't, doesn't fit correctly. And what's funny is as you're going through this prototyping process, you're constantly, you know, testing and fitting it. And with a prototype, a lot of times you can't necessarily foresee If you change this one little seam construction, the whole thing from aesthetically will be thrown off. And a lot of times apparel is very discretionary, like this works here. I think it's cool, but someone else doesn't. So a lot of times for us, long-winded answers, it's just a small change and it completely throws off the entire intended product. Metaphorically and literally, you pull on the one thread and the whole sort of comes apart. I think for us, it's new technology coming in. So as you're developing something, all of a sudden, Bluetooth low energy or beacons or wearables, VR, AR, all these kind of hot button things that always pop up and you're almost done and they say, well, hey, how can we make this in 3D? Well, that's a major change. And so I think for us, it's all about communication and and kind of resetting expectations to see if it has to be done or again, if we start to make kind of a roadmap on it. Being in the technology space, things move fast enough Pretty that fast. When you, when by the time you finish the process, things may have, have turned around. You may have a whole new phone. <laughs> so, Chris, do you have examples? That- yeah, I think um, for us, a lot of the time, um, we kind of pride ourselves in being a shop that will take on uh, jobs that other people have said, oh, no, just oh, pretty much other shops will say, no, go to ADX because... They'll do anything. <laughs> and so, what, what, give us an example of that. Uh, it's it's mostly people with just sort of crazy ideas wanting to use um, strange materials that most people just, they've never worked with. We've obviously never worked with them. What, uh, what's an example of an unusual material? Just like a lot of uh, like new composites or like 10,001 different kinds of plastic that behave differently mm-hmm. or someone really, really wants to like glue a... Uh, laser cut tissue paper design to like the back of a sheet of leather and then, and then attach that to a piece of brass and they want it to roll up. And it's like, well, (laughs) okay. (laughs) And the answer to that is we'll try. (laughs) Uh, But a lot of times it's, for instance, gluing things together. You don't think a lot about it and you should uh, because a lot of things won't, you know, you need to use a certain type of glue you need to apply it in a certain way and you think it's going to be simple. And then you glue everything up, you come back and you have 500 little pieces of paper that have turned a weird color and delaminated and, uh, and your deadlines that day. So <laughs> it happens more often than anyone would like to think. So I, I follow on to that. How often does that kind of thing happen for each of you? For us, it's as little as possible. I would say maybe 
once every couple of years, there's sort of like a moment where um, we're just like wowed by something <laughs> going so far askew of plan that, and even sometimes it's things that we actually do have expertise in. And for whatever reason, like it's very recently, actually, we had a job that I don't want to go into too much detail about it, but we were doing some resin casting, which is pretty run of the mill, but for whatever reason, the day we were doing it, maybe it was a little too humid or whatever. Um, it just wasn't working out. It was a really tight deadline and it's kind of a drop dead thing. So, you know, every, maybe once every couple of years, something just absolutely out of left field comes in. I think we're going to have to leave it there for today. I want to thank all three of you. Thanks, Chris Lau, Ben Storm, and Carson Cook for being on the show with us today. And next week on Biz 503, we'll talk about how to make sure your product will sell and how to get started with beta testing. Thanks for joining us today for Biz 503 on PRP and have a great weekend. Support for Biz 503 comes from Imix Law Group, offering trusted legal advice to startups and small businesses. Imix for business advice.